1: Welcome to the faber Keto Podcast. This is episode 66. And today we are interviewing Dr. David Unwin. Now, for many podcast listeners who will be very familiar with the work of Dr. David Unwin, who is a NHS, well in the UK, a GP, so general practitioner or family physician for our folks in the US. Very, very prominent and the you know the podcast, um, YouTube, uh, conference scene. I know Jackie, um, you've we have seen him at the PHC conferences, and you recently ran into him at Kestival.
0: Yes, he was there. He was one of the speakers at Kestival. and um, because he's a PHC ambassador, one of the founding ambassadors, um, he was on our PHC table. And we had lunch together with dr jen and christine who does some work for him um so we all had lunch together which was lovely to sit and chat
1: so i think that um you know podcast listeners you know very familiar with the story of dr anwin you know who was a practicing uh, general practitioner and one of his patients came in and he didn't recognize her so very famous story so not wanting to really preempt um, our interview, um, you know Dr. Unwin is a passionate as you you know ambassador advocate for um, for low carb in reversing type 2 diabetes, and he's very successful um, as we were here on uh, on our interview and our
0: UK listeners might have seen him feature. Very prominently in the daily newspapers. Quite often, he's in the Daily Mail, and they have um, they do a a sort of feature over several days and featuring the recipes from Giancarlo and Katie Caldese. So they they he's been in the paper quite a lot. I've seen his articles.
1: But I think most successfully is obviously his work with the NICE guidelines. And, you know, the, again, in the UK, um, in the context of the, the healthcare system that he was advocating for these infographics, which showed how many teaspoons of sugar were in, you know, certain foods as a education tool, which was validated by the, the NICE guidelines, which are obviously evidence-based guidelines. For healthcare practitioners so it's actually his work has become not just in practice but he's actually really being able to translate that into the the literature the medical literature to evidence how wonderfully successful um he he has become in reversing type 2 diabetes
0: and i think correct me if i'm wrong or if you don't know i don't know um he's done some courses on the website for the general the council of the general practitioners so Correct, yeah. he's yeah he's been educating as well educating other GPs as well
1: that's that's right. It's the Royal College of the General Practitioners, and that's uh, short courses. So yeah, so the doctors can then get their continuing education um, hours accredited by um, yeah the work that he's done in developing the curriculum for for the general practitioners. That's right. Very busy man. Very
0: It's taken us two years to get him on.
1: Well we finally um yeah had had a wonderful opportunity to interview him so Jackie what, for you know for people that may not know about dr unwin tell us a bit more about him
0: so dr david unwin frcgp works at the nord nhs surgery in southport near liverpool uk where he has cared for the same population since 1986 as a family doctor to date 102 out of 201, and I think that's gone up since then. I think he mentioned, of his patients with type 2 diabetes have achieved drug-free remission. This gives a remission rate of 50% at 30 months duration of a lower carb diet. One of the best results for any clinic in the world. For the past few years, he has been a UK Royal College of General Practitioners expert clinical advisor on diabetes. Dr. Unwin's work has been covered by both BBC, Channel 4 and Channel 5 Television, The New Scientist, The Times, The Daily Mail and The British Medical Journal. As at Low Carb GP, he has over 62,000 followers on Twitter.
1: Let's hear more from Dr. Unwin.
0: Welcome Dr. David to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today.
2: It's fabulous to be here. <laughs>
0: We made it after so long
2: Yeah, you've cornered me at last You've cornered me at last
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I attacked you at Kesterville, didn't I? (laughs) You
2: did, you
0: did (laughs) So for our listeners, we always ask Where in the world are you?
2: Where am I? I'm um, about a mile away from the Irish Sea So as I look out of that window there uh, The countryside stretches away It becomes a marsh And it's full of geese and wild swans and I live on a farm in the middle of the countryside and uh, got lot, we have sheep and geese and hens and a cat. And also, for those of you interested in Australian wildlife, I have a, a pet blue-tongued skink sitting in the kitchen. So there's your... Wow. It's a reptile about that, about that big and it eats cat food. <laughs> there you are. We'll start with well, not a lot of people know that.
1: No, we <laughs> feel skin. very privileged. Yes. Yeah,
2: I'm I did. Sharing that. I,
1: yeah, I did see a beautiful picture of, um, we've had, had your lovely wife, um, Dr. Jen Unwin, on yeah. yesterday on Twitter with your cat. So could you tell me, is it a Burman? You've got a Burman cat
2: originally? Oh, yeah. So this, it is a Burman cat. Mm. And so I have three children, and when they get to be 10, if they learn to touch type, their gift is the pet of their choice so they can have any pet they want so my daughter picked a parrot and then edward when he was 10 he wanted to have a cat and he, he researched really carefully the best cat in the world and in his opinion it's a burman and i must say uh they have blue eyes they are they are so good with children and also we never have any mice and in fact the cat will catch rats and even rabbits and drag them in. In fact, the cat caught. I was awake at four in the morning because the cat was murdering something. So yes, we do have a Berman.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. I had Soxy. Soxy was my Berman, and I ah. had um, yeah Mr. Jinx, the ragdoll, and then I had Haggis, the Scottish short hair. So I'm your number one cat lady. So when I want to that lady. picture of Jen. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I, Jen is a woman after my own heart. So, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. She does knitting and uh, knitting and cats.
0: Excellent. But you like more wildlife, don't you, she told us.
2: Yep. So that's a a lifelong passion of mine. So I started working for the Three Owls Bird Sanctuary uh, in the north of England when I was 12 years old. And I have worked for the bird sanctuary for 50 years now because I'm 63 and I've outlived everybody. So I'm now the senior trustee and I run eight separate bird reserves wow and five of them are within five miles of this house and that's why i'm so passionate about the geese and the swans and regenerative agriculture and loads and loads of things about hedgerows and ponds and what lives in them
1: yeah fascinating
2: (laughs) <laughs> but
1: how did, how did David, the bird the bird lad, get into, into medicine? That seems to be okay, an interesting... That's, yeah.
2: yeah, that's right. So I really was the bird boy and my bedroom was full of little creatures and tanks and I was rearing baby animals. And, you know, I, I really wanted to be a vet. I really wanted to be a vet. But the horrible reality is it's actually, it's harder to be a vet than it is to be a doctor. And I wasn't clever enough to be a vet in that hilarious so your vet is probably cleverer (laughs) than your doctor i couldn't get into they they said at school they they were brutally honest and they said david you're never going to get the grades for veterinary science you need to think again and my mother was very kind she said you couldn't you have animals as pets you know as a hobby why do you have to earn money from animals why don't you know why don't you do medicine and then use the money you make from medicine to do the wildlife thing and in a way i have Although I've loved the medicine. I've absolutely loved the medicine so much. So I'm not a bit sorry. I do both now.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that I think, in a way, coming back to, you know, the point of the podcast, that vets are more open to, you know, what have you been feeding your animal? You know, why why are they getting this problem? And what have you, well, have you been feeding them?
2: Yeah, you've you've actually touched on, an, uh, this is fun because it's a new angle, so because i started as a child i'm with wildlife i'm really observant of animals in the wild and one of the early things that really puzzled me for years was so if you observe wildlife it always looks healthy doesn't it you know birds always look great dolphins in the sea look terrific you don't and and then compare that to what you see in any town or city in the developed world, do those animals, those human animals, do they look healthy? No, they don't. They really are. They're not shining. A few young people look quite healthy, but on in, on average, by the time people get to 30, they don't look like healthy animals. And this mystified me and fascinated me uh, from very early as a doctor, because I am observant and I observed this and I thought, why is Why are the human animals all looking so unhealthy and a related question is quite an interesting one so because i used to run a bird hospital and we looked after sick animals and birds the big question is how do you keep a heron how do you how do you give it what it needs for a, a healthy life or a gannet or any unusual animals so the same question applies So if you were to have a pet human being, what would be the perfect way to keep that human being healthy and happy? And I think in there, you've got an interesting sort of slant on medicine. And that's been my lifelong thing is if I had a human pet, how would I keep that human animal really happy Mm. and healthy? Because when I look around me, the human animals are not happy and they are not healthy. And I I have noticed in my life as a doctor. So I, I, I was a young doctor in 1986 and now I'm an old doctor. So that's many years. And during that time, I would tell you that health has deteriorated a lot, really a lot. Um, I, I'll give you an example. So. We, we, we did an audit of all the people in my practice with type 2 diabetes in 1986. Uh, this is a practice of 9,500 people. There were 57 individuals with type 2 diabetes. Fast forward, we've now got 473 in the same population. So I've got an eight-fold increase in the people suffering with diabetes. Yeah, in my lifetime and every practice I know and every country that I've ever visited around the world has a similar problem and uh, alongside that um, people with really severe obesity in the practice were very rare in 1986 there were hardly any of them and now my waiting room is full of of people who did were rare so then the, they're now they're sitting there in their 50s with walking sticks they're suffering with morbid obesity and all of the back pain and all of the self-esteem problems and all of the suffering and i see uh, this avalanche of suffering and it has changed and one of the worries i have is when the old guys like me have all died out nobody will remember a time when Healthy humans were much commoner. You know, when I was a child, there was uh, only one fat kid in the entire school. I remember his name. I won't say it in case he's listening. There was only one fat child in the entire school. And also, I didn't know, I'd never heard of diabetes. There was nobody I knew with diabetes. And in fact, there was nobody with asthma either. Nobody. And so the world has changed and as I say, my first of all I just thought, well it's funny because they don't look so good compared to animals. And and then it was like, why? So I I'd, I'd got nothing but questions mm. and no solutions until about 2012. I had no all I was I was just troubled. Any street just worried me. You know, if you're a doctor, you never you never you're always working in a way. If I I'm very sensitive to unhappy people and very sensitive to sick-looking people. Yeah. Uh, and and so I suffer slightly in every supermarket and every train station because everywhere I look, I'm made a little bit unhappy because I see people and, and I think, oh, you could be so beautiful. You know, I look at young people and I think, if only I could just tell you you could be so gorgeous, and I see young men, and I think you could be so handsome and you look so unhappy and unwell, and plainly are not old. And so this was happening to me. It was very depressing, can you imagine? Uh, everywhere I went, mm. uh, I saw kind of suffering and unhealthiness, and I didn't join any of them together. I just saw obesity, I saw diabetes, I saw acne, I just uh, particularly. Oh, back pain, ankle pain, depression. My surgeries were full of unhappy people. And what was I doing for them? Not a lot. Oh. Not a lot. So it's very depressing.
1: So when that lady came into your office and you didn't recognise her, I mean listeners may well and truly be familiar with your oh, story. Oh yeah, that's that's so my, that uh, one lady. Yeah.
2: yeah. All, oh my God, it that was amazing. So I'll I'll go over that slightly, but I hope that listeners just, will forgive yeah. if they've had it before. Yes. So naughty lady, not taking her metf- her metformin for diabetes. Tut, tut, come and see Dr. Umwin to be told off and not taking your drugs. She comes in. Uh, I'm astonished because I don't even recognize this lady. I was going to tell her off instead of which she tells me off because she says, well, So you're right, I'm not taking my drugs and I'm not taking my drugs because I don't need them and I don't need them because I now know what has caused my type 2 diabetes. And you, Dr. Unwin, never ever uh, gave me a chance because you never told me that bread was sugar and that I shouldn't eat bread or rice or potatoes as somebody with type 2 diabetes. I had side effects from the metformin you prescribed me for 10 years and now I've lost weight. I feel fabulous. And none of it is due to you, Dr. Umwin. And then she finished by saying, was I properly qualified? You know, did, did I really need her to explain to me that starch was sugar, you know, because starch gets digested down into sugar. And I was, I was scared witless <laughs> because, uh, she was a, a, an angry, powerful woman and she, and the, the thing was, she was absolutely right. How depressing. You know, I'd been asleep and, and she was right to be disappointed in me. And I was wide awake and listening and learning from that person. And I owe her a, a lot. And all the people I've now helped, I'm kind of trying to make up for the 25 years when my response to so many illnesses was more prescribing. You know, yeah, what, whatever it was, I had a pill for every ill.
0: Yeah.
2: And I, I wasn't thinking about the true cause of illnesses. Mm. And it's a bit late to wake up aged 55. And yet the questions were all there. I knew nobody, even you know, I kept giving one drug and then another and then another drug for the side effects of the second drug. And it was just I felt depressed. It was a mess. Rel- and relentless. You know, particularly I would spend hours a day signing repeat prescriptions. Hours signing they came in massive baskets. We can do it by computer now, so they've speeded it up. But I used to receive baskets full of prescriptions for hand signing. It would take an hour a day. The prescriptions were so many. I couldn't, it was just awful. And then suddenly a eureka moment because here's somebody who's come off the medication and looked better. And uh, everything uh, just all fell into place. You know, why, why do people have type 2 diabetes? Why do they have high blood pressure? Why do they have all all these? Why do they have high blood sugars? Loads of things all fell into place, and so that one person, that was one patient, the first I had ever seen in twenty five years, put her diabetes into drug free remission. So that means she had a normal blood sugar and she'd come off drugs.
0: Does she know the effect she had on you?
2: Yes, um, she's unfortunately uh, moved away from our area that she's moved hundreds of miles away. So I've lost contact with her. But yes, uh, I was humble, I hope, and grateful. And also I asked her, well, where did you learn all this? Because I, you know, I agree, I got stuff to learn. And the thing that really amazed me was she was part of 40,000 people all learning together on a a wonderful website called diabetes.co.uk She was on the low carb forum and um, it it broke my heart when I looked on there because those people were all being rubbished by GPs like me saying what you're doing is dangerous and you'll, you'll all die. You know, you'll all die. Your cholesterol will go up and it's all dangerous what you're doing. I was truly embarrassed by honest people trying to do good stuff and then being rubbished. Yeah. Truly embarrassed.
0: And sadly, we've got more doctors now, but sadly, it's still the case, really, isn't it? Still happening a lot.
2: Well, I'd, I'm I'd, I'm resolutely determined to be cheerful. <laughs> and I would, you know, in 2012, as low-carb GP, when I began, I was totally alone and rubbished and shouted at, and I got hate mail and everything. Then we started work on the patients in 2013. And now I know there are hundreds and thousands of healthcare professionals who've met people uh, who have done well and are interested. I have to say, I am often disappointed that the doctors are not more curious as, you know, you'd hope that being a scientific sort of turn of mind means you're curious. And I often say to patients, oh, your doctor must be so proud of you. Has he not asked why and how you did this? And I'm terribly disappointed if healthcare professionals are not interested. And some of them, I think they're so tired, as I was tired. They're so exhausted by COVID and by the demands upon them. Because as I said earlier, if I've had an eightfold increase in the numbers of people with type 2 diabetes, but I've also had increases in hypertension, heart disease, obesity, and I don't have any more doctors in the practice now than I had years ago and no more resources. So actually being a doctor now is much tougher. It's terrible. Mm. And I think many doctors are utterly exhausted
0: mm.
2: and they haven't the strength to look at where this pandemic of illness is coming from and actually do something about it because they're they're tired. That's the kindest slant I can put on that.
1: Yeah so where did your new sort of your curiosity take you because obviously you know from that moment so from you as you said that eureka moment you've had to become curious about um you know hypertension fatty liver triglycerides and insulin resistance because that's all part of that metabolic syndrome so tell us how you've been able to sort of you know you've brought hope to so many so thank you so first of all thank you for you know the remissions that you've, you know, and the savings to the NHS. But tell us a bit more about how you've become more curious about, you know,
2: yeah, these new great... ways
1: that you've, you've conceptualised all this.
2: That's a great question. Right, that began in 2013. It was, uh, the word astonishing keeps coming to mind. It was astonishing that people, I saw them shining with health and people i'd known for decades came in looking your word fabulous they did they'd come in and i could see in their eyes the first thing i'd noticed was their eyes got bigger um, if you lose fat you lose fat periorbital fat very early in in going low carb and the first thing i'd notice is people i thought why do they look so much better and their eyes look bigger. It's funny that, and it's true, but then their skin would look better. And it goes back to the, my sensitivity to health. And I'd really not seen this before. People were coming in only weeks after starting this new thing, and they, they look great. Their skin, I, I couldn't work it out. What am I seeing? And I realized their skin looked better very early on. And then, um, so, I've told you about one of the dreary jobs of being a doctor is signing all the prescriptions, but another one is going through the blood tests. I used to hate this because hundred, hundreds of tests are coming through and, and you've got to read each one and categorise it. But early on, one of the first things I noticed was liver function, was improving. I was seeing astonishing, again, the word astonishing, improvements in liver function people uh, uh, i'll give you uh, an example i had one lady whose liver function was three times the upper limit of normal so she was three times worse than normal and she had been for 10 years and i had referred her to two gastroenterologists to be told off for drinking and she didn't drink mind you i thought she was drinking i thought she was fibbing and she said, no, Dr. Amina, for heaven's sake, I don't. Will you stop asking me about alcohol? I do not drink. This lady, within a, a very short space of time, for the first time in a decade, had normal liver function. Again, I'm astonished. And she looked wonderful. So I was so intrigued because all these different things were happening. So we were, I were finding liver function improving in weeks, I was finding triglyceride levels. So, just for the for the listeners, triglyceride is a, a cholesterol. It's one of the you know when it, we don't just measure cholesterol, we measure a thing called a lipid profile, and a lipid profile is your cholesterol, different types of cholesterol, and also triglyceride, which all of which are implicated in heart disease. Triglyceride terribly interesting because it it doesn't respond well to statins. So doctors everywhere have a bit of a problem with triglyceride because we don't, well, I used to, I didn't really, people would, they'd have a treble normal result for triglyceride. So a level three times higher than normal. And it's a bit of a problem for doctors because we don't know what to do about triglyceride because statins don't salt it. So I didn't really, I used to fudge it. I didn't really, I'd say, hmm, you, you probably need to eat less fatty stuff and exercise more. Shall we? Let's do the, the blood test again in a year. So I was kind of fudging it. And I think if we're being honest, doctors everywhere fudge those triglyceride results. Anyway, at least I was monitoring them. And triglyceride results were dropping in, a, again, a way I had never seen. And if, if any of the listeners um, f- follow my Twitter account, you'll see I quite often do graph of the week. So this week's graph of the week is somebody whose triglyceride is the best it's been in 15 years. And that is because they've gone low carb. So it's all becoming like a really intriguing puzzle. So I was finding uh, liver function rapidly improving. I was finding...
0: So when you say liver function, would that be um,
2: okay? A, that's sign, gamma GT. a
0: sign of um, fatty liver disease?
2: Oh, you've opened another can of worms there. Well, I didn't, you see, in those days, I didn't even know about fatty liver disease. Isn't that dreadful? So we have this, we have a thing, fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease now affects a quarter of everybody in the developed world. Wow! So again, for the listeners, one in four of everybody you know has fatty liver disease. It's absolutely, I've checked on this and it's really true. In fact, I checked it in the practice when i read that i read it in the british medical journal and i thought this can't be right so uh my practice is computerized and i can search on everybody's liver function and sure enough when when we got when we audited the the liver function of all of my patients a quarter of them have abnormal liver function it's true and that was another puzzle i didn't know why i didn't know it was fatty liver then so that the, the Let's just enumerate the pieces of the puzzle that I was facing. So you're right, all quarter of all the when I'm going through the blood test, a high triglyceride, really common. I'm going through the blood tests, abnormal liver function as represented by a gamma GT or some of the other liver enzymes. So often wrong. People with high blood pressure, and there's a there's an epidemic of that. People with fat tummies, the the central obesity that is linked to eight different cancers, also rising exponentially. Uh, Type 2 diabetes rising exponentially. So you can see why I was so depressed looking in primary care at my patients. All of these problems and with it, anxiety, depression, poor self-esteem, poor skin, acne, lots of things. And so first starting with that lady, and then so many of these things on the first, so there were 18 volunteers at the beginning, went low carb with Jen and I, the first 18. And we explored this together. And then the results, so the triglycerides improved. The liver function tests improved. Speaking personally, I had a real mystery because I used to have uh, moderately raised blood pressure. And uh, I didn't want to be a patient. So I just worried about it, but I didn't do anything. I just monitored it from time to time and then tried to forget it. And really, I was supposed to go and see a doctor, but I didn't want to be a patient and I didn't want to take medication. So I ignored it. Isn't that stupid? Anyway, I ignored it. But here's the weirdest thing. I found that within a few weeks, if I stood up too quickly, I felt really dizzy in the practice and i needed to hang on to the desk because i thought i'm going to fall over and i did my blood pressure and it was like a teenager so i'll give you an example my blood pressure used to be 160 over 90 quite quite often and then i'd think well you're probably a bit stressed in the practice but one day my blood pressure was 115 over 70. i didn't know that was possible (laughs) I hadn't had a blood pressure like that since I'd been a medical student, but also the patients were noticing the same thing. Some of them were, um, had high blood pressure and some of them I had to actually stopped the medication for high blood pressure because the blood pressure was too good. So this is really intriguing and there was more. Uh, so I've, I, at that time, despite being a bit heavy, I was a kind of fattish bloke that did running. Um, uh, And uh, I found that I needed to increase my salt intake because if I didn't, I got really bad cramps, muscle cramps. And my cramps were so bad. that I used to wake Jen up because I would shout in my sleep in pain and have to leap out of bed and hop around the bedroom. It's hilarious. You know, anyway, so, Another part to this fascinating puzzle is so here we have people whose um, fatty liver is improving, the triglycerides are improving. They're weirdly needing more salt. Now that to me was utterly fascinating because I thought salt was certain death, mm. and I was telling everybody, "Oh, you you know, use low salt or don't have salt, or you're probably having too much salt." And I was forced to have more salt because of the muscle cramps. Yeah. so what is going on isn't this interesting we i'm f- utterly fascinated we've got all these things type 2 diabetes improving big fat bellies are melting away blood pressure's improving everybody's having more salt and yet the blood i'm stopping drugs for blood pressure yeah and in fact, i wrote this up eventually as a peer-reviewed paper and at that by 2019 i was having to stop I think it's 20% of all the drugs for high blood pressure that my patients who choose low carb were taking to keep them safe because they the blood pressures were so good. So that's really significant.
0: Can I ask and, a question? Um, yeah. So I know somebody who high blood pressure, taking high blood pressure medication, eats fairly low carb, but the blood pressure doesn't seem to have changed.
2: It doesn't for everybody. This is the thing. It doesn't for everybody. And it's because the causes of high blood pressure, there are different causes. Right. And that, that actually, now that relates. So I'm leaving you all, all the listeners there on a cliffhanger because I am going to pull it all together. Uh, but you've distracted me now, Jackie. <laughs> Sorry. So, so the listeners are going to have to forgive a little a little diversion. So doctors call this this epidemic of high blood sugar, we call it essential hypertension. And why do we call it essential hypertension? So one day in in the doctor's common room, I go in and I'm now becoming quite an irritating senior partner because I keep asking questions when everybody's tired and they're a bit short tempered with me. And one day I said at coffee, I said, I said, I wonder what the cause of high blood pressure is. And they said, don't be stupid, David. That's why we call it essential hypertension, because we don't know what the cause is. And I said, well, but, you know, this this is one of the commonest causes of mortality in the whole world. And do you really think it can be true that we don't know what the cause of blood pressure is? And they said, for heaven's sake, don't don't start this again. You know, we've got enough with diabetes. And now you're on about blood pressure. And it's, it's true, we call it essential hypertension. And I used to explain to patients, we call it essential hypertension because we don't really know what the cause is. But do you know that isn't true? We do know what the cause is for many people and it is linked to diet and it is linked uh, to insulin. So I'm going to put you all out of misery now and I'm going to link together. So let's see if I can do it. Let's link together big fat bellies, fatty liver, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and triglyceride. So let's see if we can link all of those together. Uh, and this, this linkage, by the way, took me about probably four years of puzzling and examining and going back into the literature. And a lot of it we've known since 1933. We've actually known a lot about, of this. And it's all to do with insulin. And insulin pulls the whole thing together. So let's, 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 let's talk the physiology of insulin. And I hope uh, you'll find this interesting. And I hope it helps listeners understand what's underpinning so much illness. Mm. So insulin, oh, it, it's, the, it's the master hormone. The master hormone. It's got a finger in every pie. It's doing a lot of things. But uh, one of the most important things it it does is keep you safe in terms of blood sugar. And that is because a high blood sugar damages the lining of your arteries. So a high blood sugar very rapidly, it's called the glycocalyx, which is the delicate lining of large blood vessels and small blood vessels. So high blood sugar rapidly damages the lining of your large blood vessels which causes this is the link between diabetes and strokes and heart attacks a high blood sugar damages the small blood vessels of this is your eyes and kidneys yep. which is why we're, we're so worried about the eyes and kidneys in um in diabetes so nature always knows best and i, I knew that as a child In nature, everything is for a reason. And part of the fascination of biology is is working out why uh, things are as they are. There's always a reason. And insulin is there doing a vital job. It's there to, you eat too many biscuits, that blood sugar needs bringing down and fast. Because otherwise, very rapidly, within hours, you're starting to damage the glycocalyx, the delicate lining of your arteries. So the first question is, well, what does insulin, what does it do with that sugar? And I often say that to patients. Well, if if insulin gets rid of blood sugar out of the bloodstream, where does it put it? Because Jen has taught me that questions are more powerful than statements because you cause people to think.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's
2: really key to get my patients to think. Oh, and... Let's try and get doctors to think as well. So where does insulin put that sugar? Well, we know some of the answer, don't we? Insulin pushes sugar into muscles. But what if I eat more biscuits than I need to run around? And if, let's be honest, I did eat more biscuits than I needed to run around. Insulin has to get rid of that sugar. And it is pushing it into my belly fat where it gets turned into more fat. And that's why I had middle age spread, age 55. My waist was expanding. I thought, well, isn't that normal? Don't all people, as they get older, get a bit of a big tummy? And so, you know, it's a bit depressing. I just didn't look in the mirror. Or I sucked it in. Or you put the belt. A lot of blokes put their belt underneath. So I was determined to have a 32-inch waist. <laughs> Lift your belly and belt. put the belt under the belly. I need I to try that yeah a lot of blokes do that so insulin is pushing sugar into your belly and you end up with a fatter belly and this as i now understand is why we have an epidemic of central obesity big bellies and central obesity is linked to eight different cancers so it's kind of serious so there's a link between insulin and eight different cancers there's another really important place that insulin is pushing sugar and that's it pushes it into the liver. Now, the liver can store a very small amount of sugar as glycogen. But when your glycogen reserves are full, and for most of us, they are full because we eat too many carbohydrates, your liver has no choice. It has to turn that sugar into a fat. And that fat is triglyceride. So I just answered the question Of where did the high triglyceride devils came? They came from biscuits. They came from cereals. They came from sugary drinks. Because your insulin is pushing the sugar into your liver. The liver cells, there is nothing they can do. They are forced to turn that sugar into fat. And that fat is called triglyceride. And that triglyceride builds up in the liver and you end up with fatty liver Hmm. and we now know that fatty liver interferes with the action of insulin itself so you become resistant to the work of insulin insulin resistance and my friend roy taylor the terribly clever roy taylor that's done he's done so much work on uh, drug-free remission of diabetes he talks of the long silent scream from the liver And the long, silent scream from the liver is, like me, all these doctors ignoring abnormal liver function tests in younger people quite often. And without knowing it, your patients are coming to harm because gradually insulin resistance is setting in. And after about 10 years, you have uh, type 2 diabetes. And so you see now we have a link, don't we, between diet, that is uh, sugar and also the starchy carbs that break down into liver, a state of um, producing more insulin. And then, of course, if you become resistant to the work of insulin, your body produces even more insulin, compounding the problem. Mm. And then we have the final hammer blow. Your pancreas gland, the very gland that produces that insulin from the beta cells in the pancreas gland is also filling with fat. And the fat in the pancreas interferes with that gland's ability to produce insulin. And so I find patients who are rapidly spiraling into worsening type 2 diabetes because they can't even produce enough insulin. And at this point, because it sounds so depressing, I must inject a bit of hope. (laughs) Because, of course, what I described was in the early days, those patients um their their liver was emptying of fat rapidly and diabetes was being put into remission like the lady who came in and i've now got in fact i found two more people yesterday afternoon fantastic so my 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 total now is 107 patients in drug free type 2 diabetes remission so all of those all of those vicious cycles will go into reverse if you understand what's fueling them yeah and it's sugar now, of course, um, I haven't, if, if, if either of you, Louise or Jackie, are paying attention, I didn't explain everything, did I? What did I miss out? It's a test. Okay. What did I not give you the answer to?
1: I took notes. Does that count?
2: Well, big, it does. Big, but I'm, big bellies? No, what did I not explain?
1: So we we of did. Of all
2: the things I deliver. told you. did, Yeah, you did.
0: Um, high blood pressure is caused by the sugar.
2: The- no, I didn't tell you how. It, so that's what I have Oh okay. I- have I? Oh
1: no. To be fair, yeah. you said it was the glycocalyx and you said it damages the yep. lining of the yeah. small of the blood vessels. But that so- doesn't
2: that doesn't explain blood pressure. So it does explain it does explain damaged arteries. But I've got something else to explain. Okay. I need to explain. You no. don't yet understand the role of salt. You don't know why my patients needed more salt.
1: Well, that was
2: for the cramps. No, he's still, I'm going to help you. Don't worry. You don't, why, why was my blood pressure improving? And why did, why did the salt not make my blood pressure worse?
1: Yeah. Well, Jason Fung says that when your insulin, because obviously when you went low carb, your insulin was sort of lowering and your kidney, kidney function was improving. So in your, in your sort of distal tubes and your loops of Henley, you were actually um, improving your filtration, and you were obviously losing salt.
2: Okay, and that's why your blood
1: pressure was going down.
2: All right, you're three quarters of the way there. I'm astonished. All right. Well yes. done. You get <laughs> Louise. You get the house point. And Jackie, I'm so sorry. Louise is winning. <laughs> of course, well, she's the winner. It best was
1: only person. because of Jason. Because it was it was Jason Flom that told me. Okay,
2: that, so. right. So. That, so let's get back to the the real nitty-gritty and 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 there's some wickedness in this so here i am utterly fascinated by why is blood pressure improving and why is everybody needing more salt and you know isn't salt certain death well this is odd isn't it so i discovered so i um i got together with a professor of cardiology and also a very well-known cardiologist uh, called scott murray who's really interested in preventative cardiology and i discovered by searching that we have known since 1932 that insulin causes the kidneys to hoard salt so one of the other effects i told you there was lots of them one of the other effects of insulin is to cause the kidneys to hoard salt so a high carb diet is a high insulin diet and you're hoarding salt and that salt fluid follows salt so that you cause fluid retention and these are the people feeling bloated the number of people and these are the people that lose the other thing i didn't tell you was how all my patients including me were having an almost embarrassing weeing loads of urine when you first go low carb You can't believe it. I had one guy lost five kilos of weight in a week. I had two patients who I reversed their heart failure because they went low carb. And it's because you go low carb, your kidneys suddenly start getting rid of the salt and the water and the fluid overload, the chronic fluid overload, which is one of the causes of blood pressure. There are others as well. Is all put into reverse. And you get another virtuous cycle. I've got, I had one lady I'd been giving her super strong water tablets called fruzamide for 14 years. And I could take, again, her blood pressure too low. I took her off. She didn't need fruzamide anymore because, and the scandal is, scientists have known since 1932 that insulin causes renal sodium reabsorption and hoarding of salt. And in fact, that work has been built on, if, if any, 20, no, my, it was the 2019 paper on blood pressure that I wrote with Professor Brady and Scott Murray. It's open access. And all of this is there for anybody interested. But there are countless papers developing this theme of insulin and blood pressure and sodium reabsorption. And many of the drugs that help blood pressure actually work on this and it's a bit of a scandal that we haven't just helped people stop eating biscuits and sugar because not everybody, but in I find many, many people their blood pressure improves. And we have known for so long and calling it essential hypertension is a, is a whitewash because many educated doctors do know uh, that diet is a, a, important and we are, um, we're blaming the wrong white crystal. Yeah, we're blaming we are blaming salt for what sugar did which is the title of one of my talks we are blaming salt for what the sugar did when you cut back on the sugar i now need a lot i enjoy salt so i have loads i have to have salt otherwise i get this feeling dizzy when i stand up too rapidly thing jen has an incredibly jen's usual blood pressure is about 90 over 50 that's really low. Wow. So she has to have a lot of salt to maintain her blood pressure. Yeah. And um, a, um, a lot of people with low blood pressure are, also have headaches, which Jen and, and more salt helps with the headaches, which is a completely other story.
0: I've definitely found that more salt helps with my headaches.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Sometimes I can yeah. just take some salt and it will go away. Not always. Sometimes it's a yeah. migraine. But yes. sometimes if it just feels like it's not a migraine and just a bit of a headache, yeah. salt will do it. That's interesting about insulin causing the kidneys to hold salt, because my understanding was it was the carbohydrates that did it. But no,
2: there, it's actually, it's a, Yeah, we just dig down. It, it, it's the insulin. And as I say, insulin, it, it's a it does so much. It's also a growth factor. So insulin is an important growth factor. And that might be one of the interesting links between insulin and cancer. Yeah. Because maybe if you have too much of a growth factor, isn't cancer an overgrowth? And as uh, it's well known um, that there is a link between central obesity, insulin and eight different cancers. So one of them is breast cancer.
0: I was going to say, can you, can you name the eight
2: cancers? Oh, I can try it. I'll name some of them. So some forms of breast cancer colorectal cancer is another one and that's definitely increasing in my practice and i'm i definitely see it in people with i can think of some very sad cases uh, of people with central obesity i think prostate cancer is another one i think renal is another possibly thyroid and i can't remember the others okay Uh, but i i know that cancer research uk um we're heading this up, you know, because they said everybody thinks of cigarette smoking as the cause of cancer. But actually, a really common one is central obesity. And sadly, Cancer Research UK really got a battering. They put that on bus stops and people were busily being outraged. But I think it's not fact shaming. It's a, just a fact that central obesity can lead or be associated with cancer, Great. and I don't think it's rude to tell the truth and i I think patients deserve the truth they don't deserve a whitewash and i I am not ashamed to give that information to patients that this is how terrible to keep silent and wait till- people have cancer now that's bad, saying nothing, holding silent that's really bad. Just what is bad, I think is fat shaming where where you know this is Jen's thing where actually a lot of people with a, a weight problem are food addicts and need help. Yeah. They can't help it. And they, the obesogenic environment makes it very difficult to eat well.
0: Extremely. Um, and
2: we should, Yeah. And we should be not criticizing people with weight, but we should be working with them to try and help them. And that's what we're doing at, at, at in my practice at Norwood Avenue. Yeah
1: you're talking about ethics and I think, you know, when we want to be doing good and not doing harm, when we withhold information, you know, that does harm because we need to be empowering and enabling and advocating and knowledge is power. And making a statement, as you did, you know, you can sort of be asking questions. Um, What did Jen say? Questions are more powerful than statements. So when you ask the question, and this is based on the epidemiology, so we're mm-hmm. making a question about why does central obesity, you know, the prevalence of central obesity linked to, you know, these eight different cancers. And that invokes those that curiosity, and that's when you sort of going, well let's go back to the root cause. Yeah. You know, the root cause, if we get back to the insulin, it's all about the insulin, then let's do something about it. Yeah. And we can actually strengthen you know, as you've done in your practice, we've strengthened your um, your patient's personal skills. And that's what you're doing. You're promoting the health. You're enabling and strengthening your local community. And, you know, you have successfully this week, you know, 807. You have changed. 807 oh, it, people's lives by so reversing.
2: Sorry. It's 107.
1: Oh. Sorry. 100. It's 107. still, a, it's still <laughs> was, a lot, but
2: it, it's 100. Okay, it's a lot. I've only got, I've only got, so, but what it is though, it's 20. So I've got 473 people on, in the diabetic register. Right. So right. that's actually 107. I wonder what the, I think it's about 20% of my entire diabetic mm. register. Yeah, it, and that yeah. shows it. And given that the power. only, so of the people who choose to go low-carb, so not all my patients do, but of the ones who choose low-carb, 50% get type 2 diabetes remission. Imagine mm. if you could do that around the world. So it's still a lot. But just to come back to the point, Louise, yes, what what I have learned is um, I used to hate people who look stuff up on Google. You know, because they think, well, I'm the doctor. So now you're coming in. and But actually, isn't that curiosity to be encouraged? Isn't, you know, intelligent people getting them to show an interest in their health. Isn't that a great thing? And if people are asking questions, I love it now. And before you see, I didn't like people asking questions because I didn't know the answers. But what I love now, if I don't know the answer, I should say I don't know. But maybe that's an interesting thing. And don't be. Uh, don't be precious I, I think as a doctor yeah. i used to be a bit defensive you know about difficult <laughs> questions and now i love a difficult question because well somebody's thinking aren't they that we shouldn't discourage that
1: yeah so i have i have to tell you i i was probably one of your worst patient nightmares because I would actually bring in the journal article. I would have it. I'd purposely highlight it, you know, with my with my yellow, and then I'd have this. I'd have the sticky notes on it. So I trained my GP to sort of say, she would always say, "Well, tell me what you found." And we did the flip, right? So, and I said, "Look, I found this, 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 and this," and then I'd say, "I would invite her. This is my understanding. Well, what do you think? What have you seen in your practice?" And it was a transaction. So it was. I understand the defensiveness because you're the authority, um, you know, and my other GP would actually have the cup, you know, with your your Google search doesn't replace my medical degree, which I thought was a slightly <laughs> arrogant uh, way of uh, saying uh, he didn't want Dr. Slightly...
0: Google.
1: He didn't yeah. want Dr. Google, but I would come in with the peer review literature. I would have it highlighted. I'd say wow. I've done my research. Um, you know, here here's what I'm thinking. This, this is what I think my options are, what, 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 What do
2: you think? Perfect. Louise, and that, that is, that mirrors. So I, I've been both of those two doctors. So when I was 55, I was the, well, you know, actually I've, I've sat behind this desk and learned quite a lot in the last 30 years to try and shut you up. And of course that was wrong, 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 wrong. And I, now the psychological approach is to celebrate your patient's inquiring mind and to work with them. It's a collabor. The best medicine is collaborative. Collaborative, yeah. But
1: I think, it, but I think it. What was? I just didn't want to be taken as an idiot. You know. Yeah. I mean, I have my own insecurities. You know. I mean, I have a PhD. I'm clearly, you know, I have deep knowledge in one area. I know stuff. I know a lot of stuff about a little area, but I just didn't want to be taken as an idiot, and I yeah. wanted to be able to have that collaborative approach to my health. This is my health we're dealing with, and it was important that I be taken seriously.
2: Yeah, you've brought something really interesting there into discussion and that is what are clinicians for? So what is it that I have that's of any use? And experience is useful. And I, I also think here here we come, I want to develop a new theme, which is to what are academics for? Mm. And I, um, I feel there has been an imbalance. So really, when we think of evidence-based medicine, we should be looking at a sort of wonderful uh, cooperation uh, between uh, patient experience, which is valuable and valid. So if it works for one patient, so if you have one person, that woman whose diabetes was put into remission. You shouldn't rubbish what she did because that's valid. It worked. So that's patient experience. Uh, I call it the black swan. They exist. And therefore, you can't argue your way out of a black swan. They do exist. Not all swans are white. If you find a black swan, you can't. Once you found one black swan, you know they exist. So that patient's experience was a black swan. And she shouldn't be ignored. Uh, She should be listened to. But then we also have what a clinician's for. I am a very accurate observer of the human condition because I've spent all, some, all my working life watching very carefully. By the time you've walked into my room, I know whether you're sick or not. I'm telling you, I, I mainly do. I've only got to see you for 20 seconds. And I can sift out the sick animals from the, the very healthy animals. Mm-hmm. So I'm a very good observer. And I think that's what I bring uh, to the, the party as sort of, well, what's common and, and what works? But we come to the academics. What are they for? Well, they're for testing hypotheses because they understand scientific method, testing hypotheses. But I believe what has happened is we, we, we've all got disjointed over the years. So they, the academics have got separated from the clinicians and i remember there was uh, a huge meeting at swiss re in zurich uh, a massive meeting and we were trying to look at uh, what could be done ab- about the about the chronic ill health and i was trying to be helpful so i stood up and i said i asked the speakers what do you think clinicians can do To help in the epidemics of diabetes and obesity and a professor answered me and he said david unfortunately there isn't really much you clinicians can do at the moment until the academics have kind of sorted out what's going on how wrong he was yeah how terrible and this is the disjoint between not listening to clinicians and actually roy taylor wrote to me and it's to his credit he wrote to me and he said i am so sorry about the answer that you've got because of course i notice things and my my the last 10 years of my life i have published papers on what i've noticed and what works and you should uh, um what works and audit so auditing clinical practice keeping data data is power Data is powerful. And if there's one thing I have done correctly, because I was uncertain at the very beginning whether what I did was dangerous or not dangerous, I kept very careful records. And they are computerized and they can be interrogated. And the the result has been the paper, the peer-reviewed papers, which are incredibly popular. And that information, that data, the audit of ordinary clinical data is Equally as important as as what some of the academics do. I'm not saying more important, but it's equally important. I think it's a yin and yang situation. We need the academics, but we also need interested clinicians keeping data. And I noticed what happened was I used to look at the journals and there was nothing in it that was relevant to my experience. They were writing stuff that had no relevance at all. And I think we've wasted many years, you know, thinking about cancer, thinking about high blood pressure. We've become obsessed with the drugs as the answer to everything, because the drug companies have funded the research. Yeah. And there's been a disconnect between the patient experience, like the first lady, and in a way like Louise and you, Jackie, a disconnect between the patient experience, the clinician and the academics. And what yes. I'm trying to do is reach out. So all of my papers are co-authored with a professor. So I have found some very enlightened academics who are really interested in real world data and value it. Uh, and out of it has come the 107 patients who reverse their diabetes but now doctors all over the world are replicating my work and another really important point about evidence-based medicine is the question is um okay you've got your black swan that's one but can you replicate that work and can you know i've now got 107 so well that's quite good but can other clinicians replicate my work and so recently we we've had some um uh, doctors who've written peer-reviewed papers like mine replicating yep. what i do and that means we're on to something
0: definitely i mean we we interviewed um dr ruth Tapsil, then she's oh, followed in your footsteps
2: well isn't she lovely Bless she her. is lovely and um I, these younger doctors give me hope yeah because like i say if if i when can I rest? You know, when can I work on my reserves? I it, it's so tiring. No. Uh, this it's it's kind of ten hours every day, every day. That I need to do an hour and a half Twitter every day, and these young ones like Ruth, and there are others as 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 well. Um, David Oliver is another GP I would highlight, and um, is that Neil? And he's double-barreled, Neil something jones anyway Ooh, don't know that. Uh, we're all on google groups together and there's hundreds of us yeah um,
0: so i was going to say because you said um earlier on about when your generation di- our generation
2: dies <laughs> out yeah when i when i when i snuff it
0: <laughs> or, or or stops working in yeah. the uh, well just generally we won't see those slimmer people because we have become so accustomed to seeing larger people. It has become the norm. Yes. I forgot where I was going with this. Oh, yes. So um it, it's also become the norm to take a pill for absolutely everything. It's not my norm. My norm is I don't take anything. But for most people, that's the easy option. And the, the generation of our children and our grandchildren are almost... To the point where they don't want to do anything because it's hard, it's hard. I know how hard it is when my kids had a temperature to sit up with them at night and cool their heads down with a flannel rather than give them cowpole. I know yes. it's tough, you know you, you go through nights of not sleeping because that to me was the best way I could look after them by keeping their heads cool let the let the fever rage and and they've done very well out of it. And the same when I had after, uh, so I've got twins, after they were born, three weeks later, had this massive pain in my stomach and my back. Eventually, they said it's a gallbladder attack. So I went to a specialist. Oh, we'll just whip it out. And it's like, I've just had a cesarean. I don't want my gallbladder whipped out. What can I do? Oh, well, there's nothing you can do. I said, okay, thank you. I'll go away. And... It took a long time and a lot of research to to find a way to manage it, but I did it.
2: Yeah. Well, you've just thrown in two interesting spanners into the works. <laughs> I, I'm going to come back to gallbladder because they interest me, and I often get asked uh, what happens low carb and gallbladders, and I know the answer to that. We'll come back to that, but the the, the first point I think. Uh, And again, I'm I'm always looking for hope. I have to look for hope to stay cheerful because you see, otherwise I'd just be chronically depressed because the world is quite difficult to be hopeful, but I'm resolute and determined to be hopeful. And the thing I think that's hopeful, Jackie, is that what I find is if you give people the opportunity and the alternative, say to somebody, right, type two diabetes, I could start lifelong medication today. The pros and cons of that metformin is good, but 20% of all the people who take metformin will get diarrhea if we're being honest about our information. And then I say, but if you want, I'd be really interested to support you with a low carb approach, which probably could do the same. Which would you prefer? And people given the choice do not want to take medication. I used to think I didn't know that, but I didn't give them the choice (laughs) <laughs> so I used to, to think, I used to think that patient, you know, I used to blame patients for everything instead of myself. So it was so much com- more comfortable to blame the patients for being fat, to blame the patients for not taking my advice. Mm. And most of it was my own fault. And that is because if you don't ask the questions, you will not find out. But I have asked resolutely since 2013, every single patient who I've diagnosed with diabetes or worsening, I've given them that choice. And not a single patient has asked for the drugs, not one. Fantastic. And that is why my practice now saves 58,000 pounds per year on the diabetes drug budget. Because if you ask enough people what they prefer and they all choose lifestyle, and if my nurses ask the, the same question, and if the other doctors ask the same question, we're not using the drugs because it's depressing. People, I thought that, I, I thought patients quite like drugs. I used to think they wanted prescriptions before they'd leave the room. That is wrong. If you, if you give them information, most people are very interested in health. They, they don't, they think that going on drugs makes you feel older. And they're very aware of side effects people are so much brighter than ever i thought so that um what you what you feel is um is is actually a prejudice and not true because i've done it now i'm every single person not one not a single one good. Has said give me the drugs good. isn't that wonderful yes, is that yes. has that filled you with hope Jackie? it has now?
0: it has oh, i like that Third.
2: good let's come back to the gallbladder because i did f- promise you that didn't i um so in the early days Uh, I told you I got hate mail and people shouted at me and all the rest of it. And they were always looking for how low carb would kill you. So I was told low carb because of the meat and the butter and all the rest of it, your lipid profiles will all go to hell and, and you'll die because you're full of cholesterol and triglyceride. Not true because I I measured it and the lipid profiles all improved and in fact there are enormous meta analyses now that prove that lipid profiles improve on low carb so that was the first thing I was told then I was told oh low carb or keto particularly people tend to eat uh, more protein in the form of meat and the meat'll definitely kill you and it'll kill you through deteriorating renal function because Um, you know, it was thought that the Atkins diet caused renal function to deteriorate. Guess what? Not true. I have just published a paper with a professor of nephrology uh, two months ago, open access. If you just Google Unwin and renal function, you'll get that. It's not true. It is not true. Uh, I find that renal function in my patients improves on low carb. And actually, when I dug down with a professor of nephrology and a very senior dietitian, the work um, telling you that meat will ruin renal function for people uh, was uh, a lot of it was epidemiology. Why am I surprised? And uh, of poor quality. And any, in any case, my own patients improved significantly. So my detractors are constantly looking for ways that low carb will kill you. Uh, you know, so they sometimes they hit upon bad breath as they oh or constipation. Actually constipation not true. Another one, not true. And then they go, Oh, Louise, you want to interrupt?
1: Keto crutch. Have you published a paper? Open access. I could because with, a keto, nev- with a keto crutch specialist. Have you uh, yeah. analyzed deep do, dive yeah. data in your in your database? I've never seen it. There?
2: well, I haven't been able. I haven't found a single case.
1: <laughs> we of have to keto find that. crutch. Like- black swan keto crutch i have yet
2: so here i am running one of the biggest practices in the world on low carb and i haven't seen a single case not one (laughs) so i've nothing to investigate because i can't find one (laughs) so so much for keto crutch and then um back to the point um yeah, gallbladder so people said oh but yes what about the gallbladder and there is actually some really interesting research on this so that actually people who go low carb are far less likely to produce stones in their gallbladder and actually if you go back to physiology this makes sense so the the cause what is actually happening to form a gallstone is a crystallization of the bile salts and if you remember How would you form crystals from a salt solution? You'd dehydrate the salt, wouldn't you? So if you start off with with salty water and dehydrate it, the crystals will form. So if you don't use your gallbladder and you don't use the bile salts and they just sit there in your gallbladder, you're more likely to get crystals and they form the start of stones. But if like me, You're having fatty meals every single day. My gallbladder is a busy place and the stones never get to form because I'm constantly, the gallbladder is a muscular bag and it's squirting itself and emptying. So actually there is an RCT on this and gallstones are far less frequent in people who use their gallbladders with a fatty diet. The problem is somebody who was um, low fat for years if they go low carb, they may then suddenly squeeze a gallbladder that hasn't been used for a long time and, and, and squeeze out a, a gallstone.
0: i thought that.
2: Yeah. That's and me. You may produce a gallstone mm. that you'd had before, but you're Great. very unlikely to form new gallstones. And that's a far more nuanced mm. chat about gallstones mm. based on the physiology, as I understand it, and based on the research as I've been able to find it. And so actually, uh, in, in, in my practice, gallstones as a problem are incredibly uh, rare. Gout is another one uh, which improves with uh, low carb. Um, and, and so I keep looking people that say to me, what is the, you know, what are the side effects of going keto or low carb? What are the side effects? Well, difficult to say. I'm looking, I really am looking. I don't know the answer. I sometimes wonder if you need a bit more magnesium, Uh, possibly. You might need more magnesium. You do need more salt in your diet. So maybe you need more magnesium. So I personally take magnesium a few times a week because that also helps with muscle cramps. And I, I probably have more salt. But in terms of actual side effects of low carb, I haven't obviously keto flu at the beginning.
0: Yeah, but well that passes.
2: Uh, so that, uh, you know, just that, just clear, that, I think it's clearing that, out that that passes. But most of the side effects of going low carb for me and most of my patients have been improvements. I think one of the, one of the big things, and this, this, this links in with Jen's work, is as she would say, um, you know, it's simple, but it's not easy. And, and Jen and I are really interested in our failures and the people who don't do as well. But they, on the whole, they nearly all don't do well because the basic problem is carb addiction. And they're struggling to do the thing they know they ought to do. And then they feel bad about it. Mm. And that's why Jen is trying so hard uh, to look into how do we help people with, with carb addiction. Uh, A condition which I'm told doesn't exist, which is hilarious when I'm seeing people every single day. How to contact me. Low carb GP on Twitter. Please follow me. That kind of thing. Because it helps. Because why why do I do this? Am I an egomaniac? Well, maybe I am. I could be. But the reason I, I, I do the Twitter thing is actually having a large Twitter following brings with it political power. Um, it's, it's as true as that so that because I have I think about 65,000 followers um, on occasions if I ask to see the Secretary of State for Health I have been to Parliament they they will listen to me so it gives me influence um, and, and um, that is really helpful and the more followers I've got the more influence I have and it, it actually means I can the papers I write because I can use Twitter as a vehicle to um, get those papers out there. You know, it's a great shame to write a paper and nobody read it. But the editors are interested in how many people read my papers. And the answer is a great many. And that means it's getting progressively easier to publish papers because the journal. So I, I get about 30 emails a day saying, have you got a paper? We'll take your next paper. And that is showing... The power of twitter and social media for actually changing uh, and and it's making it easier for other low carb people to publish papers because they see their popular papers they they can smell what sells and low carb is interesting and social media so powerful this is a grassroots revolution with people like the lady who spoke to me at the beginning and like you too um at, it's a grassroots revolution of intelligent people interested in what works. So following me on uh, Twitter is your, is your best thing. Yeah. Uh, what do you want now? Some top tips?
0: Three top tips.
2: Oh, can I do three? I, I think um, seeing yourself as an interesting, never see yourself as a problem. You know, I used to see patients as problems. And if you go through your life seeing problems everywhere you 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 will become depressed if you're surrounded by problems I try and see things as interesting puzzles you know how much better that your doctor thinks of you as an interesting puzzle to be worked out rather than a problem Mm. but that can also apply to your own body so try and see it as instead of I'm so depressed I hate myself I'm you know I'm fat I'm unattractive all of that if you can try and see it, well, I wonder why. And that idea of curiosity, see it as a puzzle. And that leads on to, I see myself as a lifelong experiment. And, and so I, you know, I, I went low carb with the patients just out of scientific inquiry. I thought how I'll do it and see what happens. And then of course I'm amazed. And that, I'm continually refining what works for me because diet is an individual thing. Diet, no, no two people have an identical diet. Jen and I live together, but we don't have the same diet. And so each of us needs to refine what works for us. Yeah. So I know I need magnesium about two to three times a week. I know that if, if I'm speaking, that stresses me. And I've learned that if I'm stressed, I need more magnesium. And I've noticed that through getting muscular cramp when I'm doing a tour in Australia or wherever, because public speaking stresses me and I mm-hmm. need more magnesium. So I'd say to people, notice what works and, and do more of it. Be yeah. a scientist. Observe. Each of us can be a citizen scientist. And observe what works and do more of it. Maybe keep notes. How do you get your feedback? How will you know that you're better? So is it that your waist, you know, what are you measuring? As scientists, we ought to measure stuff. So are you measuring your waist circumference? Because that would be a good thing. Are you weighing yourself if weight is a problem? Are you, have you bought yourself a blood pressure machine? And you could monitor your blood pressure. Or are you in touch with your inner self? Do you know when you're miserable and short-tempered? Do you know when you're overtired? But can you recognize when you are your best self? Because there are many different factors in that could help you be the best. Do you remember me asking right at the beginning? And this is a good note to finish on. The question of how to keep that pet human. That pet human is you. You are the animal you keep. And, and you should think about what are the factors that make you your best self. And I know I need a certain amount of rest. I know I need to socialize. I need to value my family. I need to tell stories because I like telling stories. I like to be creative. I like to work in nature. I like to go outside. I need to take exercise to stay sane. And then again, in my diet. I know that if I cheat and have sugar, I become anxious and fretty. I've learned that. So all of the listeners can be citizen scientists and think of themselves as a lifelong experiment because you change as you get older and you'll find, uh, I can't exercise now as I could uh, when I was younger, but I still exercise, but in a different way. I need more rest. I've noticed I need more rest. So each of us can be... Uh, ho- hopefully interested in what works and flexible to do things differently
0: mm. yeah and constantly looking and exploring so if you've got time where where do you see yourself going now
2: in the future oh gosh that is an interesting question future it's a bit like should I write a book I don't know then everybody will say oh he's just doing it to make money so I don't and also it takes a long time I think the next thing I I can tell you what I am doing. I can share with you what I'm doing. So I'm still learning from my data. And I think it's really interesting to say, can I predict who will benefit by, you know, who will get type two diabetes remission? That's science starts with interesting, asking interesting questions So, of my patients. Can I predict who will get remission of their diabetes of the people who choose the approach? But then there's another question. But what happens to the others? What happens to them? So I think that's my next paper is can I predict who will get remission and what happens to the others?
0: Mm.
2: And I think that. And also another question is, well, does does age do how do older people do? or younger people, or no. does it matter how long I've had type two diabetes? So I quite I'm actively, that's the very next thing. So I've got a Zoom meeting with my wonderful medical statistician, Christine uh, Dion. And, and, and she deserves a, a, a shout because she's worked for free all these years and a medical statistician, oh my God, they're rare. They are precious, precious people. And they they don't get the nobody goes hooray for medical statisticians, but you know if you're going to interrogate data, an understanding of statistics is key, and and so Jackie that's my next thing, um, a paper I'm hoping to co-author it with a very famous professor, a really famous professor, um, in the in the field of diabetes, and Jen of course will co-author it with me too. Have a look. And I think Dr. Simon Tobin is my partner mm. and the current senior partner in the practice. I now work for him. Mm-hmm. So I, I trained him and now what comes around goes around. And I'm I'm an employee and I work for him. So that's my next thing.
0: Excellent. That's Thank wonderful. you so Thanks much so much yes. for joining us and for your time today.
2: I thought that was fun actually, and the time as it did and I, I hope some of it was a little bit new for some of the listeners and mm. not my usual uh thing so I'm I'm really content and grateful to you both that was genuinely fun thank you
1: well
2: well done. let's hope somebody listens to the yes. end <laughs> uh, <laughs> <which> we're
1: gonna
2: <laughs> ask well, our well, listeners, listeners listeners yeah if us, still, I dear listener if you're still listening just tweet me so I know you did. Okay, I'm going now. Can yes. I go? Yes, okay. I yeah, you can. Go. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I love bye bye, everybody. Bye Goodbye. bye.
1: Bye-bye. I don't know about you, Jackie, but every time I hear Dr. Amwen speak, you're just continually inspired by his commitment, his passion, his energy, his vision the way that he advocates for not only just his clinic but you know the application of using you know carbohydrate restriction for you know reversing um successfully type 2 diabetes it's just one of those things that you are inspired in. and yeah i just wish he was my gp
0: yeah me too (laughs) yes and and the
1: other thing is and we've mentioned this loads
0: of times before and it's you know doc- with dr jen is the hope that they're bringing to other people that they can do this they can reverse their type 2 diabetes despite other doctors telling you it's not possible you can only manage it so i think you know it's wonderful to have the doctors and we know we've had on dr ruth Tapsall, who who's inspired by dr david lots of other doctors are now Taking up that mantle and running with it,
1: and that's right, I mean, but it, it's really interesting where we've had the other doctors that have had their own lived experience, their own experience of living with obesity, whereas you know dr Dr. David and Dr. Jen, you know they both had had issues you know with obviously you know some weight, but it's different where they're still able to live, you know walk the walk and have lived a low carb life to know how it feels and how they use that to inform their practice and part of that practice is the base you know the basis of that hope and it's the hope that really drives that success as well so coupled with you know restricting carbohydrates in a low carb you know way but it's the hope of, you know, being able to play with the grandchildren or to be able to, you know, walk without being breathless or, you know, being able to, you know, see hope in that way. It's just really inspiring as well. Mm, yeah. And I think, you know, what what gave me
0: hope from talking to him was that he was mentioning that most people, given the choice, whether they take a lifestyle action or take a medication, most people are choosing to take the lifestyle way rather than um just medicating, which gives me hope because I just see Julian and he's just you know he's the medication route don't doesn't want to make any changes to his life, so it's good to hear that there are other people out there who are who are taking the the other route.
1: The non-medication route, and which really speaks to the de-prescribing, and we know from our good friend Graham Phillips, you know, the the pharmacist who doesn't like to, you know, like to deal with drugs. Gave up drugs. Yeah. Yeah, the pharmacist gave up drugs. But it's with that hope, as you mentioned, you know, the fact that Dr. David has seen an eightfold increase in his in his practice already since 1986 that that's actually, you know, that's a lot of hope to give, you know, and prescribing hope, you know, that you can make a difference by making this particular change in order for you to be able to, you know, have pay, be pain-free or, uh, you know, play with the grandchildren or be able to walk around the block and not feel breathless. That's That is a really great intervention. And all the while he is saving the NHS money, you know,
0: Loads, loads of it.
1: Mm-hmm. But it's not only that; it's also the fact that he's um, advocating through the PHC. He's giving his time to the Royal College of General Practitioners. He's publishing in the journals, which, as a practitioner, is really important to be evidence-based. He's providing and almost validating, legitimising that this is a path that works. You know, there's only so much you can say. And do, but if he doesn't put it in a language that other healthcare practitioners can use, you know, with um, the right validation credentialing, then um, Mm. yeah, it's just a story. So
0: yeah, it's an it it would be considered an anecdote rather than correct.
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you know, he's doing all the all the right things as a professional. Um, to put it in the right terms to be able to do that. So, as well as advocating in Parliament. So when they had that parliamentary hearing. Yeah, and
0: he was telling me that all the all his commissions from the book sales, they all go to the PhD. Correct. So he doesn't take any money for that. That's right. Mm-hmm.
1: So it all speaks to the, um, you know, it speaks to the man. You know, as we yeah. said, he's walking the walk and talking the talk. So that's that's just wonderful. Jackie, where can we get the show notes for this episode? So the show notes will be at fabulouslyketo.com forward
0: slash podcast forward slash 066. Great. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish.
1: Can you recommend a guest we in interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation.
0: Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes.
1: If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners.